0: Good evening and good afternoon everyone. Today we have with us one of the world's eminent scholars in information systems and technology from the New York University, Professor Anindya Ghosh. Professor Ghosh is going to join us today in the CMHS HealthCast podcast. He is the Heinz Real Chair of Professor of Technology and Marketing at New York University at the Stern School of Business and holds a joint department in a couple of departments in that university. He's the author of a very blockbuster book, if you want to call it that, TAP, Unlocking the Mobile Economy, which is a double winner of the 2018 Axiom Business Book Awards. He also is the director of the Masters of Business Analytics program, and also the Leonard Leonard Stern Faculty Scholar with the MBA scholarship. Several other accolades you can look up on his website. One interesting piece of news is that Dr. Ghosh and myself share our same grad school, so we both went to Carnegie Mellon. So It's a great opportunity to have Professor Ghosh with us today, and I would love to chat with him today on his two recent papers on digital health and physician and patient behavior. Dr. Ghosh, thank you so much for joining us in the conversation. Srinatham, great to
1: see you again, and thanks for having me. Looking forward to our chat.
0: Thank you, Anindo. Since you called me by my first name, I'll just switch there. Absolutely, Um, yeah. All right so Ananda, why why don't we start with your wearable device paper what did you find in that paper and why do you why are you so excited about that paper Will yeah you so through that a little bit
1: absolutely yeah you're absolutely right i'm super excited about this paper you know not just because it took us 5 years for us to publish it but because i truly believe in the research question and its application so you know here's what's going on for the last 5 years 6 years since we saw the advent of wearable devices that people often buy, you know, like an uh, Apple Watch or a Samsung Watch or a Fitbit or a Jawbone, right? People have been really, you know, spending time trying to figure out if the adoption of these devices is actually causing any changes in the lifestyle of people. And is that actually resulting in any concrete positive healthcare outcomes? Because okay? mm-hmm. we've heard this buzz about wearable devices for a really long time. But there's been no work done that actually quantifies whether or not these devices and these apps on your smartphones that are, you know, health apps or nutrition apps or fitness apps, are they actually making people change their wellness behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the question we wanted to answer. We want to see if people are actually making changes in their short-term behavior, in what they eat, how they sleep, how they exercise, et cetera. And in the long run, does that actually help, for instance, the patients of chronic diseases like blood pressure and sugar and diabetes and so on? Okay? And in the, the, even a longer run beyond that, you can uh, imagine looking at healthcare consequences such as doctor visits, insurance costs, medical expenses, etc. So, you know, I, that's the reason why my co-authors and I were really interested and excited about this project. Uh, and I should mention that I have a couple of co-authors, uh, Professor Bebe be Li, who, by the way, is a professor at Carnegie Mellon in Heinz, right. where you know you also went, and uh, you know Professor Shi Guo, who is a professor in Harbin uh, in China.
0: Excellent. So, what was the experimental design? I'm intrigued that after five, seven years of wearable de- designs, nobody used observational data, or what special did you do with your experimental design? That would be very cool. Thing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. Why didn't people use observational data? Because, you know, you will then face an immediate self-selection problem, right? right. What will happen is people who use the device are, um, will then self-select into actually exercising more and eating better and sleeping better. And so any positive outcome you see from those patients is essentially, you know, you can't disentangle what is the effect of this adoption from just natural self-selection. Um, and so that's why, you know, when we started looking into this in 2016, we decided to partner with the largest healthcare app platform in Asia, um, this app platform essentially focuses on chronic disease patients, like, you know, diabetes and blood pressure and sugar and so on. And we carried out, we designed and essentially executed a randomized, a very large randomized experiment in which essentially, um, you know, we will have the usual treatment and control groups randomized, of course with the control groups not getting access to these devices or these mobile health apps, and multiple treatment groups. The first treatment group will have access to the mobile version of these wearable apps. Um, A second treatment group will have access to the mobile version. Plus, they will get a generic reminder every day about their exercise activities or food, uh, nutrition patterns, or sleeping habits. And a third treatment group that will get a personalized reminder, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so between, you know, the two control groups, the one that doesn't get any intervention and the one that gets the intervention on a desktop, comparing them with the three treatment groups, um, we were able to disentangle the, the true causal effect of the adoption of these devices. Mm.
0: And and uh, we would have an audience here who probably might be doctoral students, and you know, like, in India, there's a lot of activity on technology and healthcare these days. so. Right. One thing that one would love to build on your work, I'm I'm sure you guys will get a lot of citations from this paper as a result of being first in this space, uh, is that uh, how to navigate the ethics board clearance. So I have myself done an IRB on certain context and it seems Mm -hmm. like you get these weird questions, you don't know how to respond to that. And I'm sure doctoral students, if they want to design an app or something like that and see its causal effects on health outcomes, Mm -hmm. will also run into this. It would be nice how, uh, to share from your side how your research team dealt with it, and if there were issues that arose from the uh, from the IRB and ethics clearance issue, because the control group didn't get the the treatment, right? So, uh, how do you do respond? I'm sure IRB might have raised the question there, and how was your response there? Yeah, so so you know, uh,
1: broadly at the very high level, uh, one has to make a distinction between data that is automatically recorded by Health apps and smartphones, and data that is actually self-disclosed by patients. Okay, so in our context, that's a, that's a very important distinction. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, when people are running as an exercise or when they're walking, you know, that is data that is automatically recorded by the app, especially mm-hmm. because you know, these apps and the smartphones have gyrometers, accelerometers, et cetera, right? And then there's another kind of data, such as, you know, changes in your glucose level on a daily basis, changes in your cholesterol level, changes in blood pressure, or even like what food are you eating and what is the actual calories in that food consumption. Those are examples of data that are actually self-disclosed and sort of self-recorded and uploaded, right? And so you know, that's the important distinction to be made. Um, as a researcher, um, for any sort of you know, clearance, you have to make that distinction. The second issue is then you know, patients have to be informed ahead of advance you know, right. what data is going to be collected and you know, at least broadly how it's going to be used. You cannot be very specific because when you're designing a field experiment, you, know, you have to observe the effect of the intervention Without seeding any ideas in their mind. In our context, for example, when we recruited patients, you know, we essentially did it through both offline and online channels. Uh, We looked at newspapers. We looked at, you know, online uh, social media sites. We looked at physical, you know, flyers being sent to hospitals and other sort of medical institutions. It was a combination. And in those flyers, you know, we had one uniform message that um, if you decide to participate in these experiments, here's how this will happen. You know, you will be given a free device. We will be uh, asking you to upload your data on a daily basis for a certain period of time, and as a consequence of you know doing this, you would be eligible for a lottery, like a raffle prize. Mm-hmm. Right? and we are essentially telling them that you know you will be observing your um, you know behavioral like psych- uh, you know physical physiological data. So, there's full transparency. The patients know what they're supposed to do. Percent, yeah, exactly. It's informed consent. So, that, I think that is critical to get any sort of, you know, to make sure that you've done it right.
0: And did the reviewers trouble you with the fact that this is an Asian population, may not be valid but if you take it to an European population? They are more fidgety about your data and privacy and health issues and all that. Like, yeah, you know, not really. Yeah, no,
1: (laughs) we didn't face any such issues. And, you know, I mean, these days in business school journals, as I'm sure you know very well, right? It is already very well known that institutions overseas, as in in the U.S., institutions or companies overseas are far more willing to participate and collaborate with you on studies than many Western companies for, you know, kind of reasons you mentioned. So um, I think maybe, you know, 10 years back, that would have been an issue, but not today in 2020. Uh, you know, working with companies in Asia and India, Korea, China, Singapore, Japan, you know, it's not not really an issue. Um, specifically, if you can, you know, identify a question that is, you know, broad enough um, so that, you know, despite the fact that you're looking at maybe a handful of nationalities or ethnicities, the insights can be generalized beyond that local population,
0: right? Yeah. So, so what do you find? Finally, what are the results like? I mean, what's yeah. your headline so, result? Yeah, absolutely. So, you I'm know, sure I, the economist I, is soon going to pick it up and you're going to be the new superstar if, uh, scholar who is providing evidence on this. So why don't you share that with us?
1: I hope so. I hope so. Uh, we'll be very excited if that happens. But yeah, so we have short term results and then we have long term results. So the entire experiment spanned um, over a 15 month period okay, across almost two years. And we find that in the short run, people are doing three things. First of all, they are exercising more in terms of, you know, walking or running. Number two, they are eating better. They are more calorie conscious and eating better. And, you know, number three, they're also then, you know, the consequence of eating better, sleeping better and exercising more is, their chronic disease symptoms start to reduce. We find a statistically significant effect of the intervention of all the three groups um, on a drop in glycated hemoglobin, in blood glucose, you know, the kind of diabetes related chronic symptoms. Okay. So we definitely find that in the short run, there is that, you know, strong effect. And then in the medium slash long run, we find that A, they are actually reducing their doctor visits actual physical visits and hospital visits consequently there is a drop in medical expenses uh, because you know obviously uh, you're not incurring as many expenses uh, and then see a fraction of those who drop the uh, who are you know healthier and that's why they don't need to uh, you know visit the doctors or the physicians as often some fraction of them are actually replacing Offline physical visits with telehealth. So that was a really exciting piece. We saw the move from offline to online. You know, we could track that, right? Because this is an online platform. A fraction of patients, you know, especially those who are getting these personalized reminders. Yes, they overall were healthier and they were, you know, a lot more, you know, wellness and fitness conscious and food conscious and health conscious. In addition to that, they also started replacing their offline visits with online. You know, and... The interesting thing is, this is happening before COVID. So, and Mm -hmm. we are also excited because this is one of the first papers to show this uh, substitution between offline and online channels in the healthcare space. Mm -hmm. And as you you know, since you study healthcare as well, right, we are also excited about that result.
0: So, that makes me intrigued on the competitive response if those results are where they stand because now the pharma companies will say, hey, you're not consuming my statins that much more. So do I need to now create these apps and become a technology firm? and the physicians might say, I lose my business. Mm-hmm. So any thoughts there on the crowding out effects as the substitutions happen? Yeah. So,
1: you no, know, we haven't looked at that. It's a great question. We haven't looked at that per se. Here's what we saw. So yes, there's some crowding out because you know, people are getting healthier. Now, you know, in, in a general you would say that, okay, that's a good thing, right? If uh, chronic disease patients are having to less frequently visit doctors for blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol. Uh, so, you know, society as a whole is getting better. A. B, there is some substitution, right, between online and offline. If, if the prices remain the same, then, then there's not much of an impact on physicians, right, for those people. However, you could argue that I think the future of telehealth is probably going to have, you know, some drop in the physician fees when it's online versus in person right part of that is duration you know when you're doing this in person what is yeah. 20 minutes in person might become 10 minutes online right. for instance and you know i, I think it will probably have some downward effect on pricing and i think it'll be interesting to see you know how the entire healthcare ecosystem reacts to it you know for instance maybe now we get an influx of new patients who've never really enrolled in healthier plans but now with online with reduced pricing, you get a volume effect, right? So there's like higher sort of, you know, increase in overall patients. But I think there's multiple possibilities here and we just have to wait and see how they unfold.
0: Yeah, and you can also add like these ideas on precision medicine also here by capturing some uh, genetic data to correlate with their health outcomes and having targeted uh, therapeutic interventions on patients using such a, uh, okay, that's great. Uh, normatively, then, what's your recommendation to the policymaker? Because I'm presuming that these are being created by private entities. Do you prescribe that make it public? Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, that's a fantastic question, right? So, look, we, we actually, in our research, we did collaborate primarily with private institutions, hospitals, doctors, clinics. And they, because it was Asia, we had some mix of you know public healthcare institutions as well. But here's, here's you know, our study has a, a, a one straightforward, I would say, public policy recommendation and one sort of a complicated one. Okay, And I'll tell you the first one is the easy one. The easy one is if we are seeing that after about a 15-month period, there is a significant effect mm-hmm. that is people are changing their lifestyle and wellness behavior, uh, especially chronic disease patients. And they are, in fact, benefiting from a reduction in chronic disease symptoms then I think you could argue that there is a need for public policy intervention to kind of disseminate wearable devices at reduced cost with subsidy okay. so more and more people can adopt it, right? And I think that, to me, is a much more straightforward implication. Uh, you know, the parallel, I think, that people will say, well, you know, wearable devices are expensive. You don't really need, like, an Apple Watch for this, right? You can essentially, just like how smartphones proliferated, we didn't need the $1,000 Apple phones you know, you can have a $50 phone um, and it still do a lot of the same work. Exactly. So, you know, we definitely see an opportunity for government and policy institutions to, you know, really heavily subsidize the adoption of these devices since you're seeing people are going to be conscious about it. So that's, I think that's an easier, easier implication. Now, there's a follow-up to this. The implications of all of this on insurance companies, that to me seems complicated, right? Yeah. And here's why. You know, when I, when I started presenting this research in more broader, uh, you know, non-academic, more managerial or corporate forums, the one thing that stood out was insurance companies were very interested in like, you know, our, our models, our algorithms, our, you know, experimental design because they said, look. Want to
0: solve adverse selection, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly, right. So what would they do? They will basically want to penalize the guys who are non-exercising not eating well, not sleeping well, and then reward the guy, the people who are exercising and sleeping better and eating better, right? Now, there is a fundamental sort of an ethical dilemma there. Because why? We know that income is highly correlated with the ability to exercise and the ability to eat healthier and the ability to sleep more. As in rich people, they have the luxury of time, they have the luxury of money, so they can exercise more, they can eat better, and they can sleep more. And the poor cannot. So we don't want to see a world where the rich get rewarded for being rich and the poor get penalized for being poor, right? And I think that's the fundamental problem that, you know, we need to figure out a way where, you know, our research does not get sort of, you know, commercialized with inadvertent that, in that but negative consequences. We don't want that to happen. Um, and so, you know, I think the next step for us is, and I'm definitely interested in having conversation with policymakers about how to take this benefit of wearable device adoption, but given that it has immediate healthcare outcomes and obviously medical expenses and insurance implications, mm-hmm. how do we do this in a way where, you know, we don't have the maxi effect, we don't have the rich temperature effect.
0: Right. right. Okay. Very, very thoughtful that, yeah. Uh, maybe this is a good time to then segue to your other paper, which is... Online reviews and physician demand. So like a quick summary, where's the contribution and maybe for PhD students listening stuff to do, building on both these papers going forward, some open questions. That would
1: be nice yeah, to sure, certainly. Yeah. So yeah, so the other paper that I'm excited to talk to you about is you know joint work with uh, one of my colleagues, Moe Harmoni. She's now a vice-student at NYU. And one of our joint PhD students, you can show she is now an rising star, as assistant professor, University of Illinois at Chicago. So here's what we did, right? So as I'm sure we all know, right? Online reviews have been an important gatekeepers for patients to figure out which doctors to choose from. Okay? Mm-hmm. And in the post-COVID world, in the global pandemic effect, right? As I was saying, you know, telehealth and online health can become more and more important. We thought it would be really interesting to analyze online reviews for doctors from a leading medical appointment booking platform mm-hmm. to understand patient choices. You know, how do they choose physicians and, and you know, hospitals and doctors. Okay. And so the broad idea is we are using text mining and machine learning techniques and deep learning techniques combined with econometric and choice modeling techniques to examine what are the attributes of these physicians and doctors that affect their demand okay and you know i'm happy to elaborate more on this
0: so if i title this session as a tale of two papers on technology and healthcare mm-hmm. what do you think are the big open questions and grand challenges in that space for people to so see?
1: yeah no definitely and you know so maybe i'll start with what we find right and, and then i can tell you more about like you know what i think are open questions. So. First of all, our takeaways are, A, patients definitely rely on textual reviews of physician services to make their choices. Okay, So our paper identified the seven most frequently mentioned service features of physicians and doctors. Number one, bedside manner. Okay, what's a bedside manner of a doctor? Accuracy of diagnosis. Number two, waiting time in the doctor's clinic. That's a big pain point, And service time. Okay. These four were the most statistically and economically significant attributes that influence patient choices of doctors, Okay, who they visit or not. And so the implication of this is, you know, predict, these kind of predicted models of patient choices can help doctors much more efficiently manage the operational aspects of their practice. Right. Like if you know that waiting time is, you know, far worse than service time, the negative effect of waiting time is worse than service time. You know how to allocate your time, as an example, right? Um, so you know we definitely think that although you know we started scratching the tip of the iceberg, there's a lot more work that can be done to promote, figure out how to promote better long-term relationships between doctors and physicians. Okay, yeah. look, I mean, again, I think you know with the uptake in telehealth due to COVID-19, we know that individuals are using digital platforms to choose doctors and healthcare providers. And I think you know we've only done the first you know preliminary work examining how reviews can be informative, what features can be informative. Um, I think as we see more and more volume of online or telehealth adoption, you know, there's a bunch of other questions that that are opening up. Yeah. Are there you know what is the relationship between a given patient's online versus offline visit? Are the substitutes of the complements? Right, like. Now we've seen this in banking, like when people started doing online banking, they actually did not reduce their offline visits, they actually increased it. So no, I think that to me is like a very interesting, you know, uh, space where just going back you know, to the 15, 20 years to the world of e-commerce, we know that this whole relationship between online channel and offline channels became like, you know, thousands of papers were written on it. Many of them really good papers, right? We know that online, the effect of online reviews on sales mm-hmm. came uh, disciplined on its own, so to speak. So no, I, I feel like as healthcare opens up to the telehealth space, we're going to see similar questions that need to be answered. Okay? So I would say you know, for the PhD students who are going to listen, here's what I would recommend. Okay? Think about two of the biggest barrels to healthcare. So you've got you know um, e-commerce and you've got banking and financial services. Go back to Google Scholar, look at the classical papers, the earliest papers in e commerce and financial services, and then see as individuals started moving from offline to online or online to offline, what are the questions in those papers? Healthcare is going to go through a similar disruption. So, why not start to think about answering similar questions in healthcare? I think, right? So, I think that's how I would go about it.
0: Very nice. Okay, we are at the end of our conversational most. So, any concluding thoughts from these two sets of papers for policymakers, for the entrepreneurial and farm ecosystem, broadly for so, society at large? Yeah. Definitely. So, you know, so I talked
1: about the implications from the first paper, right, for policymakers. So, maybe I'll talk a little more about the second one. So, clearly, you know, on the managerial corporate side, there's a bunch of implications for platform design, right? So, Uh, To me, the biggest bottleneck or the biggest impediment that a healthcare platform has to address is how do you incentivize users to write reviews in the first place? Now we examined the effect of reviews and we showed that it can be very impactful. But how do you get users to write reviews? Because you know, like you know, in the in the retail e-commerce world, maybe 10-12% of people at most write reviews, and that that fraction is a lot lower in healthcare as of now so i think you know we can i can imagine questions about uh, using experiments to incentivize users like should you pay them money to write a review should you offer some sort of social proof like social capital to uh, write reviews should you do a combination of both you know, maybe there is creative content, uh, creative email reminders that can go to patients to incentivize them to write reviews. Uh, and, you know, there's in the ISP, there's already been work in these kind of questions, you know, again, in the e-commerce space. And I think, again, people can borrow from those papers and think about, you know, experimental designs for incentivizing users to create content on the internet, you know, in the formal reviews so that others can benefit from it. So, you know, I think
0: there's clearly platform-related, platform design-related platform design issues there. Any final thoughts on it, though? Thank you so much for your time. I know you have to keep a busy schedule, but we really appreciate your thoughts here.
1: Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Jirantham. You know, it's always good to talk to you. And I'm especially happy because we are reconnecting after a really long time. Long time. And, you know, these days I'll take a Zoom call, you know, over pretty much anything because that's the best we can do. But listen, I know you and I have talked about whenever in the post-COVID world we meet in India, you know we should uh, meet, try to meet in person. Yeah, and yeah. if I can uh, swing a trip to Ahmedabad while you're there,
0: even better. Awesome. We look forward to hosting you in campus for sure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Anil. Thank you. And stay safe. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.